I am uh, Nicolas Bornels of Capital Inc. And I am particularly uh, privileged and proud to welcome you uh, to today's event. This is the 20th annual Closed and Funds and Global ETFs Forum. So we are celebrating today a major milestone. Uh, we have been able to keep this event going for 20 years, uh, always with a great agenda, with great attendance. And this event has become uh, one of the biggest events in the industry. Uh, and an event that is widely anticipated year after year. As we were discussing just before uh, coming on board among the panelists, please allow me to say there are not many organizations who can boast the claim of doing something for 20 years. So I'm particularly moved and uh, uh, proud to be able to do so for, with this event today. And just as a moment to reminisce, we started this event. Our first event was with Michael Porter, whom we honored 20 years ago, um, Michael helped us uh, start this conference 20 years ago, uh, and we honored him for, for his contribution to the closed and fund industry. I would like to thank uh, our advisory committee uh, for helping uh, one uh, more year, Mariana Bush, Mike Jabara, and Alexander Reese. I would like to thank the New York Stock Exchange. And of course, I would like to thank uh, all the sponsors uh, who help, uh, may help make this event uh, possible. Uh, I'm particularly uh, proud of the agenda we have this year. I mean, it's one of the best agendas we ever had. And uh, we look forward to uh, a great uh, day of discussions uh, and debate. And again, thank you to all very much. And a huge thanks to the Capital Link staff for keeping the flag up so high. Thank you to all of you. Mariana, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Nicholas. And as the moderator of the very first panel of this wonderful uh, Capital Link Conference, um, I and all the rest of the moderators and panelists and speakers of today's conference would like to thank you, Nicholas, and your incredible team for putting this together and for um, bringing us all together uh, to share insights uh, on closed end funds and ETS for the benefit of the audience. So thank you so much. Um, this is, is, is a treat uh, every year and congratulations on the 20th anniversary. Um, our panel uh, of very distinguished um, individuals in this industry, uh, a, I will mention them briefly in alphabetical order of their firms. Uh, Bob Bush at Calamos, uh, Jonathan Isaac at Eaton Vance, and Parth Doshi at Nuveen. Um, so we're going to be covering uh, three main topics um, that I think will, will interest you. And in some cases, we're, we're gonna use these as appetizers. Um, may not go extremely deep into them because we don't wanna steal the thunder of a few other panels that come after us. Um, so if you think we didn't discuss something enough, um, there's a very good chance that we did that intentionally uh, because there's more, more coming. Um, so with that, uh, let us start with the first topic and that is valuations, meaning premium discounts of closed end funds. Um, I think a closed end fund conference without a discussion on valuations and premium discounts would not be a closed end fund conference. Um, so let's start with uh, that topic, um, where they are. They, they are rich. 
uh, in general, we keep track of them um, for the entire universe of closed-end funds as well as some groups. And uh, they are somewhat rich. We're going to discuss some of the reasons uh, perhaps behind that. Um, Bob, would you like to um, give, give us your, your insights on what you think is behind that and, and where we are in terms of premium discounts? Sure, Mariana. Uh, you're quite right. Um, the, the levels are rich on, on both a relative and an absolute basis. I think we've seen a little bit of a trade down uh, over the last couple of weeks as you've seen volatility come into the market, um, you know, across all levels. So you've seen a little bit of a narrowing uh, of the premiums and maybe a little bit of smaller discounts come in, but still by and large, uh, I think the pricing is rich. Um, why is that? I think there's a number of, of, of reasons for that. Obviously, you've had uh, strong performance in the capital markets uh, over the last uh, a few years. Uh, leverage, uh, which is one of the best friends of the, of the closed-end fund uh, manager. Uh, uh, many of them borrow at short-term rates, and those have certainly been very accretive. And so what that's resulted in is uh, many managers having the ability to uh, increase their distribution levels. So I think um, you know the closed-end funds held up uh, very well uh, as the general markets came out of COVID uh, towards the end of last year, they responded well. A lot of those big discounts that we saw in March and April eroded um, as we saw the markets recover in the fourth quarter. And clearly we've seen the markets do well this year. So um, I think the desire for income is still there. I mean, we still have low, low interest rates and a large portion of the buyers that buy closed-end funds are looking for income. So I think you know the, the, the general markets, cheap leverage, good management, increase in distributions uh, is really spawning what I think is a very, very healthy secondary market. Um, and I think that's good for the space. And it's certainly good for IPO issuance, which we can talk about later on as well. Thank you, I'm muted, Mariana. Sorry, I do that all the time, still. <laughs> Bart and Jonathan, thank you, Jonathan. Um, any other comments that you would like to add to that? No, I think I think Bob hit um, most of the high-level um, the, the high-level facts. I took a look at the closed-end fund association uh, website this morning just to see they publish. I think it's LIPA numbers on these sort of averages, and I I want to say the Across all funds, we were looking at something like a 2% discount, which I think we would talk about long-term averages being more like a 5% discount or in that kind of range. Um, and maybe the, the most shocking thing was the fact that the average across bond closed-end funds was pretty close to par, which um, which is is certainly rich uh, as, as you note at the beginning. And I think, um, you know, we all know, or those of us who have been around this business a long time know that interest rates are always a big factor in terms of where closed-end funds um, trade or tend to trade and where discounts tend to go. And I think the environment that we've been in over the last 12 months has, has been beneficial to that. The spread between long and short-term interest rates has remained intact, which Bob references is, is, is helpful as far as leverage product are concerned. Um, the general thirst for yield across, um, you know, across the entire uh, country, and and particularly as far as retirees are concerned, we all again know that the closed end funds are particularly 
um, particularly attractive often to, to those investors. Um, so I think a combination of all of these things, and, and as we say, the, at least up until recently, the, the, um, the performance of, of just general asset classes have, have, have helped create this, this situation that we're in today. Right. Well, uh, the the market or the universe for other vehicles like mutual funds and ETFs is much larger than that of closed end funds. Boy, the the investors of closed end funds are incredibly loyal and just they love closed end funds. Um, so I think that I find that extremely interesting. Um, Parth, any other additional comments from your side? Yeah, I, th- I think I'd echo similar sentiments. Maybe the one one comment I would add is. Um, kind of the, the valuations we're seeing may, may in fact actually re- reflect some of the value of closed-end funds where, where we're seeing considerably higher distribution levels or rates compared to other wrappers. So that the benefits of low leverage costs and uh, portfolios that have been invested up at considerably higher yields, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago, um, being, being able to then, you know, increase their distribution rates and, and pay out more than... than um, you know, other fund formats, whether it's mutual funds or ETFs, I, I suppose in some ways, uh, you know, it might not be surprising that we are seeing um, discounts so narrow or many funds trading at premiums. Um, I, I think it, it's really a reflection of um, kind of this, this perfect storm of, of events uh, for the, the closed-end fund market. I think, Thank you, Pat. I think that's a great, a great point. And um, if we were in person, it would be nice to poll the audience as to what asset classes they think look cheap today. Um, so if we're still talking about average closed-end funds discount as a negative number, which it is, a, albeit 2% versus a, a longer-term average, what, what else do they think looks cheap today if they look across the entire spectrum of, 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 of assets? Um, which, which again, I think um, must play into to this current valuation trend. Mm-hmm. And, and there is differentiation in valuation or levels of valuation depending on the asset class. Uh, preferred covered calls are richer these days. Uh, preferred, for some reason, tend to be richer, have tended to be richer, and others like MLPs are much, much cheaper. Um, Bob, you, while we were preparing for this panel, you brought up something uh, that I thought was very interesting, and that is. Zoom meetings. And I'm, I'm sure they will talk a little bit more about um, during the IPO panel a little bit later today. Um, but I think you were saying that even if there is no IPO, um, Zoom meetings have allowed uh, the sponsors, the close and fund sponsors, to reach out to many more um, financial advisors um, across the country in a much more efficient way. Can you tell us about that? I thought those comments were fascinating. Sure. Um, 2020 was an interesting event uh, with respect to the closed-end fund space and that you know, due to the COVID, you know, the IPOs uh, were unable to have many live meetings, if any at all. And so uh, the deals that were done obviously had to be marketed vis-a-vis Zoom meetings, um, which turned out to be phenomenal and, and very popular. And we saw enormous raises done uh, in 2020, and those big size deals continued into 2021. Obviously, we have the, the pricing structures different, the no load, which is encouraged a lot of people to come in. But that, not that withstanding, you know, we were able to concentrate in offices, uh, which we normally would, 
But also there are other offices that perhaps vis-a-vis -vis Zoom, you wouldn't be able to make uh, physical visits to that may have had, you know, in smaller cities where they may have had good closed end fund um, uh, interest, but you just weren't able to physically get there because it's just the, the time and the schedule didn't go. Now with Zoom and the IPO process, they're able to hit multiple meetings in a day that weren't just necessarily focused on, you know, meals, lunches, breakfasts, dinners, market close, canvassed a whole bunch of different offices. I think that enabled you or the, the issuers to get in front of newer advisors, more advisors that may come into the closed end fund space or look at the closed end fund space without sort of preconceived notions in that they always go to discounts, they tend to underperform, they'll, they'll uh, trade off when the markets trade off, they'll trade off when leverage prices go up and so on and so forth. So I think it's opened this up, this whole Zoom concept has been wonderful, particularly in the closed end fund space, because you're opening this up to more investors, more FAs, younger FAs that have, are just getting to understand and appreciate what the closed end fund product offers their clients. And I think that's, that's had phenomenal success. Again, not only respect to the new issuance, but clearly with respect to uh, support in the secondary market, which is critical in my mind for the IPO process to continue. You need a healthy secondary market to have a healthy IPO market. You want both of them. And I think that's really where we are right now. Notwithstanding the fact that you've had good performance in the capital markets, that's helped. So we're really in a good spot. And Zoom has just, uh, I think, exacerbated all these good things um, that we're experiencing now in the closed-end fund market. And I, I, my expectation is, I'm interested to hear what the others think, is that this is a good thing that will continue. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, I, I, I've said it many times. Uh, if we, if closed-end funds had the same number of investors as mutual funds have, boy, I don't think there would be a discount uh, in the closed-end fund uh, industry. Sorry, Jonathan, you had uh, something else. No, I, I, I completely agree with what you just said and um, was, was earlier just going to add one, one hopes that some of the reason for this is that the new investors are becoming attractive to closed-end funds rather than people, as you say, who traditionally being attracted to them and I'm very loyal to them as a, as a, as a vehicle. Uh, but if I could just jump on Bob's comments uh, around primary issuance and be careful not to steal any of the thunder of the group that's coming, I think Dave Lamb at, at lunchtime, but I think there is a relevance there as it relates to the secondary market um, where as many of the audience may know, there's been a very um, healthy primary issuance over certainly the last 12 months, maybe a little longer than that. Um, and typically in the past, if we, if we look back, um, we've seen that, that those periods can, can maybe get a little out of control. We, we, I think if you look back 10 years, or maybe not 10 years, eight, eight or nine years, you would see certain months when, when sponsors would bring four or five funds to market during the same month. I think the, the uh, underwriters of, of this latest phase of, of, of IPOs have been very careful to constrain uh, the issuance. And generally speaking, only one new fund is being offered um, in any calendar month. And I really think that that has helped the secondary market because there isn't an overflow of, of new issuance coming in. There is some and it's been healthy and they've been good sized funds. 
But I, I do think that's a, a phenomenon that is also helping the secondary market at the same time. Uh, that makes perfect sense, uh, Jonathan. Um, and in fact, it seems like the Closeton funds may have been uh, from the tortoise and the hare uh, fable may have been in the past many years ago, kind of the hare trying to raise as many assets as possible. But now we have settled into a much wiser tortoise pace where it's uh, slow but steady and much uh, better for the secondary market, much better for the primary market. I mean, we clearly see it on the primary market, which we're going to hear more uh, later. Um, so thank you for that for that comment. Let's move on to the second topic, mergers, uh, so that we 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 make sure that everybody who's listening here will, will be itching to listen to the uh, I think it's the twelve thirty um, panel on uh, on IPOs. But let's move on to mergers. Uh, that's one of uh, a number of different corporate actions among closed end funds. Um, it's, uh, we see them as, as positive um, generally, or for the most part, because they tend to create uh, a bigger, much more liquid fund, especially if they're, um, if they're among two or three equals um, and generally allow them to reduce expenses uh, a bit. Um, but um, Parth, do you wanna tell us about that? I, I know Nuveen yeah. has over the years done a number of, of Mergers. Uh, absolutely. So we, we uh, at Nuveen have, I think, merged 96 funds um, with, with overlapping or similar strategies. And, uh, you know, we, we think there's a lot of value for shareholders in this. We're, we're able to deliver better expense economies, um, whether there's kind of fixed costs lowering based off of a bigger asset base or, uh, you know, for, for our particular fund complex, we have break pointed fees. So we, we share the uh, economies of scale with, with our investors as, as the funds uh, grow, grow through mergers. Um, we, we also uh, are able to see better kind of secondary market quality with, with more liquidity and larger funds where um, investors that, that want to gain a particular exposure can kind of enter with size without um, you know, disrupting or, or moving the market. So generally we see a lot of benefits to shareholders for, for the mergers that, that um, you know, we've, we've done and also that we're seeing in the industry as a whole. Um, I, I think there's probably still some more mergers uh, that, that, that will get done over the coming years, but um, I think there's been a lot of progress made, made over the last decade. Thank you, Parth. Jonathan, anything? Yeah, I, th I, I think I um, totally agree uh, with everything that, that Parth said. Um, I think it's beneficial for shareholders. I think generally speaking, it can be beneficial for, for fund sponsors. Um, as, as many of the audience may be aware, um, a lot of the, the broker dealer platforms have been doing what they call product rationalizations over, um, over the last few years. I think it generally began mainly in the open-end mutual fund space where uh, smaller and, and, and product without much in the way of assets or flows uh, were kind of removed from platforms um, just because there are so many open-end mutual funds. A similar project, uh, I think, has emerged in the last couple of years, probably around closed-end funds also, where you know there are only so many that, are, that are, uh, a due diligence team and an analyst such as yourself, Mariana, can kind of keep track of um, and obviously one way of sort of 
combating that, if you will, is, is to merge funds. So you end up with larger, hopefully more liquid uh, products. You're not actually getting rid of them. So the shareholder is still having the opportunity to invest. But as far as the broker dealer is concerned, they got one fund rather than three or four maybe that they had in the past. So it definitely fits into a sort of an industry trend in that regard. Um, the only downside, I would say, is, is the, the fact that uh, a shareholder vote is obviously required in order to, to affect uh, a fund merger. And while five or 10 years ago, a shareholder vote might have been seen as a fairly routine and an easy task to, 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 to take, I would say today, both getting a shareholder vote, encouraging your shareholders to, to, to give you authority to do something like this is harder than it's ever been. Um, and in addition to that, obviously opening your fund up to a shareholder vote potentially invites the opportunity for activist investors, if they, if they exist in your fund, um, to do other things other than necessarily follow management's, um, management's goal. Marianne, thank you for mentioning. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's sort of a natural progression if you think about it, these fund mergers, because back in the day, and I'm speaking from my investment banking uh, experience and, and Naveen and Eden Vance were clients of mine. If there was a specific uh, investment thesis that was popular, had merits, and the expectation was that particular thesis was going to be successful, you'd, cu you'd, you'd couple with the advisor and go out and raise the closed-end fund. Uh, and then down the road, several months, if that thesis still worked, but opportunities arose perhaps in a global format, as opposed to the domestic that you'd just done, maybe doing a reprise, assuming the fund performed well and all the uh, ideas were, were still uh, in line, you'd go out and do uh, maybe a global rendition of that. And so there were many funds that were done sort of as derivatives of, an, of the initial thesis, but now 10 years later, it makes sense to consolidate them, given that the economy's bigger, the investments are broader and so on, that they come back into, um, they, they sort of um, um, coalesce, if you will, sort of a natural progression. Thank you, uh, Bob, for, for that history. Um, and thank you, Jonathan, for bringing this up, uh, because I think the audience, it would be worthwhile for the audience to understand this, and, and hopefully they will be proactive and they will respond to those proxies. Um, I have to say there was recently, a few weeks, a few months ago, uh, a merger that we just assumed would go through because would be approved because that has historically been the case. Uh, but we were surprised that it did not. And uh, the first thing that came to mind was what happened? Why did shareholders reject that merger? And it turns out it was as simple as they didn't get quorum. So it is a challenge. It, it does become expensive for the funds. So any any suggestions for the audience, uh, for financial advisors as to what to do? I mean, just answer basically <laughs> to make sure that um, that uh, it does not become expensive because that's at the detriment of shareholders to not get it through and not get it approved and or not get it not get enough votes uh, and then have to do it again. And any words of wisdom, suggestions? Vote your shares. But uh, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I think I, I agree, um, especially in this environment where everyone's working from home and, you know, people are working maybe not from their home, moving somewhere longer term. Um, 
and you know, people aren't going into their offices, have that same routine. I, I think it's become increasingly difficult to, to reach shareholders and have them vote and, and attain quorum. So uh, unfortunately, no, no advice, but um, uh, definitely agree with the challenge. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, and as I'm sure many in the audience know, um, we typically don't have a, a whole lot of reach out to our underlying shareholder base. Uh, much of uh, or many of closed end funds tend to be sold on the advice of, of financial advisors. Um, so any support we can get uh, from them when it comes to things like shareholder votes, assuming they agree with what's being proposed. I mean, obviously they need to understand uh, exactly what is going on, but assuming that, I think the actual process has become pretty easy in terms of, you know, if you can do it online or uh, uh, whatever, this is not a complicated process. And I also am fully aware of how irritating the amount of mail or phone calls or, or, or reminders that could be sent when someone doesn't uh, when someone doesn't vote. But again, as a sponsor, all you can try and do is, is reach these people and encourage them to use the, their right to vote. Thank you. I'm getting a, a question here uh, that is related to merger. So instead of waiting until the end, I'm, I'm going to mentioned that one here and uh it is about any um any uh, around dividend changes for funds uh after the merger and uh also on is there a risk of there being too much concentration in the larger surviving merged fund any comments on that I can say from uh, Jonathan, the, you're mute or Parth. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I can say from from a Nuveen standpoint. I mean, we're certainly you know mindful of merging. Port when we've done mergers, we we um, you know don't want to force a, a distribution reduction as a result of the merger. So we're, we're certainly looking at the earnings profiles of of funds when uh, you know if and when a merger is proposed. So uh, I would say. From our standpoint, um, I wouldn't necessarily think of a dividend reduction as directly tied to um, a, a merger, but hard for me to maybe speak for the, the industry as a whole, because there's a lot of facts and circumstances in, in these merger proposals that can be quite, quite complex and um, you know, impact the, the distribution that's made. Yeah, I think that's right. And obviously, um, the Board of Trustees for the funds are there to make sure that whatever is being proposed is in the best interests of the shareholders, um, of, of kind of all of the, the, the merged entities. Um, and I would say that, that being able to deliver uh, a distribution uh, at least comparable to, to what those shareholders are experiencing today would be one of the number one kind of items in that examination. Um, in terms of the size of the merged funds, I think that's a little bit dependent on what asset class you're talking about doing it. Um, so I think it's tough to make a generalization, but I think most of us would agree that, that you know, a, a big generalization here, but bigger is better in, in closed end funds. And particularly when it comes to things like liquidity of the, of the underlying shares of the fund. Right. And generally, as long as the, um, the, the starting funds are diversified, there is really not necessarily a reason for, their, for the surviving fund to be more concentrated. Um, so I'm not sure there is that 
risk there. Uh, what often happens is that the funds that are merging end up being very similar portfolios. So as combi the combined portfolio is, again, very similar to what where they came from. Um, I just wanted to point out one uh, technicality that funds need to do be right before they merge. And I wonder if, if the, uh, the person asking the question, maybe they were referring to this, is if there is an undistributed net investment income uh, in the fund, they need to distribute that before the actual merger. Um, so sometimes you'll see right right prior to a merger, there is a special distribution, and and that's what it what it is. Um, anything else uh, on on mergers? Okay, well let's move on to our uh, our third topic, and uh, this is actually a somewhat new topic for closed end funds, um, maybe not for. ETFs, but for closed end funds. And thank you, Jonathan, for kind of suggesting this. I think it is it is timely. And uh, that is a, a ESG or sustainable investing uh, topic, which is um, popular in the in the media and uh, certainly among uh, ETFs as well. But it hasn't really been uh, a common topic uh, among closed end funds. And while um, there is not substantial um, selection by ESG for existing funds, it is among some of the newer funds, um, they have they have this, this theme. Um, so uh, Bob, would you like to talk about this? Yeah, I mean, the thing about closed-end funds is that they, they do evolve. And we've seen this um, with respect to issuance. We've seen this over the many years that we've all been doing this. You know, it's it's not necessarily what is, um, you know, it's a lot of times it's what's, um, what folks are looking for, what investors are looking for, what new ideas are out there. And certainly that's reflected, I think, in the, in the content of the closed end funds. And so, you know, you're seeing ESG. In fact, BlackRock just raised uh, over $2 billion deal last month with a fund that was 80% uh, of the investments would be in either uh, debt or uh, equity instruments in um, securities that they deem to, um, to for the criteria of ESG. So um, obviously there's 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 a lot of interest that. You know, so you've seen things like that. You've seen uh, uh, privates. Um, many of the portfolios that are getting done uh, are with respect to, to private investments. You're also seeing, and I know um, as a research analyst, you'll appreciate this, Mariana, you're seeing a lot more funds that are being done with sort of a, uh, an open architecture or another open allocation. In other words, kind of a go anywhere fund. Uh, you're seeing more of those. I remember during the day when I was uh, in banking days, that was sort of, you wanted to do it, but you needed to have sort of more parameters around the product before you went out. That seems to be changed a little bit and that there seems to be, I guess, more research perhaps more sales management um, uh, ability to kind of trust the manager that they're going to do the right thing, whether it be based on uh, open-end history, existing closed-end fund history, portfolio manager history. So I think the parameters certainly change. Um, and that's, again, the beauty of the closed-end fund space is that um, you have the best managers in the land that, that get these done because the criteria to get them done are very difficult and very onerous. They typically have broad sales forces that they can communicate these new ideas out through. So again, I think that's what the closed-end fund offers is retail investors or any investor for that matter, uh, access to opportunities that they may not be able to get 
uh, in the context of other vehicles. And I guess, you know, that's, that's just uh, the way this space has been working. And it's, it's a credit to the issuers and I think to the sales management areas uh, to be able to stay with it. Thank you, Bob. Uh, you mentioned a BlackRock fund, and I know that Stephen Menard uh, from BlackRock will be on the IPO panel um, shortly. Uh, but Parth, I know that Nuveen also has been in this space. Tell us about that. Yeah, of course. So uh, we launched a, a fund earlier this year that, that's really focused on impact investing, where we're um, seeking to provide exposure to, to issuers or individual projects that have social or environmental benefits um, and, and most importantly, deliver competitive financial returns. So I, I thought kind of Bob described it well. This is, I think, a natural evolution in, in the market. Um, we're, you know, I, I don't think you can pick up a financial newspaper uh, today without, you know, seeing at least one article or one discussion of, of ESG. Um, this is, you know, something that, that is becoming a, a greater focus of, of all of our investment teams um, at, at Nuveen. And, uh, we're, we're uh, seeing greater demand from, from advisors and their clients as well. So uh, our, our fund that we launched earlier this year was really focused on fixed income uh, impact investing and uh, identifying projects that uh, could deliver uh, a environmental or, or social benefit um, along with uh, co competitive returns. Thank you. Thank you. Jonathan, anything that you'd like to add? Uh, I guess maybe just some general comments, and I agree with, with what both Bob and, and Parth have, have talked about. Um, we have not uh, issued any ESG product as yet. We've certainly thought about it. Um, and um, really our sort of greater involvement with ESG dates back three or four years to when we, we purchased the assets of Calvert Research and Management, who were one of the oldest uh, ESG managers out there. And I think the comment I would just make uh, as it relates to, to, to the industry as a whole is, is I really feel like in that four-year period, we've seen the change from lots of talk, lots of written stuff about ESG, as, as the others have mentioned, to some real assets going to to ESG investments. Um, and I, I definitely feel that that change has happened. And I think it's important that, that the closed end fund industry kind of recognizes that also, um, because I think it would be a great uh, evolution for us to take. Um, the other comment that I would just make is just, um, and again, this is more for, for financial advisors in the audience, is just how important I think this can be for their business in terms of attracting new clients. Um, as I think we all know, women tend to be more attracted to, to, to responsible investing. Millennials, I think we all know, tend to be more attracted to responsible investing. That to me is, is a great opportunity for financial advisors to kind of educate themselves and become better uh, at speaking about, about this. Um, and obviously the greater breadth of product that's then available to them uh, to help their clients, including hopefully closed end funds uh, can come into play. I mean, Mariana, as you well know, oftentimes what goes on in the mutual fund world precedes what goes on in the closed-end fund world as far as products, innovations, ideas. Not all the time, but mo many times it does. So ESG has gained popularity. Obviously, there are teams that are established in the asset management uh, uh, worlds, and uh, assets are raised through the mutual funds. And while 
sales management, sales is out there talking about this in the mutual fund context. You know, the idea is, well, geez, what, what could we do in the closed end fund side? You know, perhaps there could be a, a nuance to it that would be different than the mutual fund. Perhaps we put some leverage on it. Perhaps we could go throw some, maybe perhaps some privates in there and so on and so forth. So typically it, it starts in the mutual fund arena and then it's embellished in the context of the closed end fund. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're satisfying the needs and demands of your clients in, in, in a, both a mutual fund open end structure and the benefits of the closed end fund structure. Right. Mutual funds or ETFs, I guess. Or an ETF. <laughs> There's so much money going to ETFs these sure. days. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Great. Um, we, we have uh, just a few more minutes to go. And uh, there is a question um, that is asking about prognosis and risk for fixed income versus equities. And uh, the, you, all of your firms have a little bit of, of both and sometimes both, uh, both in, in one fund. Do you wanna um, give, share some thoughts on that? Well, I'll take a stab. I think, I think the, the concern in the closed end fund space is that if you have rising interest rates or in general, if you have rising interest rates, that's going to, um, have a negative impact on, on bond pricing. And of course, rising interest rates, there's always a concern about the cost of leverage, which that they think it could be that could impair the ability of a closed end fund to maintain its distribution, perhaps could result in a distribution cut. So um, I, I think, you know, you have to think in terms of what, what assets may do better in a rising interest rate environment, um, what interest rates may do better with leverage versus non-leverage. I mean, there's a lot of things out there. What, what, it, what investments may do, may do better in a, in a higher volatility environment that we may be getting in ourselves into. So um, again, I think you have to look at what your investor's profile is, what your thoughts are on the general market. And there are plenty of closed end funds out there that can, that can accommodate whatever your general thinking is. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to make a general statement if I, just off the top of my head, think about what we manage in the closed end fund space. You've got leveraged equity. That's pretty risky. You've got covered coal, which is probably a much less risky way of investing in equities. You've got long-term municipal bonds, which to Bob's point about rates, long-term rates not going up, that's an issue. But at the same time, you've got bank loans, which potentially would benefit from something like that. So it really does require um, you know, analysis of the underlying funds uh, rather than to say that one area or another is looks particularly risky. I think we all agree that valuations are pretty rich right now, no question about that. But again, to go back to where we started, that's true across everything. Um, so tough to, tough to pick out one area that we feel is riskier than another. And in less than one minute, Parth, uh, because that's kind of all that we have. Any, any other comments? Just one, one thought I, I might pose is to, to consider what, what are you investing for over the long term? Um, you know, I think closed end fund investors are generally looking for, for income. And so what, look, look at what strategy can kind of deliver that, that particular outcome um, in a kind of durable and resilient manner over the long term. And th there's probably equity and fixed income strategies that, that you know, could, could meet that need. And, I might, you know, reframe the question uh, about what is the outcome you're investing towards. 
Thank you. Well, with that, uh, Nicholas is showing up. So that's a cue for uh, our panel is over. Thank you so much, Bob, Jonathan, and Parth uh, for a wonderful uh, panel early in the morning. Thank you. Thank well, you. I'd like to thank, thank you as well, closing this panel. And also, if you allow me, I would like to uh, express a personal note of thanks to, uh, to the four of you. Uh, one of the great things that we have developed over this 20-year uh, period is I think we have developed uh, a group of uh, faithful partners who support this event year after year. So I really thank you very much for your support, for your brain power contribution to the event and for your financial support. So thank you to, uh, to all of you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas.